This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And unfortunately, our shortwave transmitter is currently down at the moment, but we'll keep you posted as soon as that situation is rectified. But we are still available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and with me in studio, I've got the lovely ladies, Roland Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, and Musiburi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Weeks of political pressure pay off as Tunisia's aligning president finally quits. United States calls on Burundi to rescind its decision to ban the British Broadcasting Corporation from operating in the country. In economics, the Cotton Council of Malawi says the recent heavy rains that hit the country has not affected the quantity and quality of cotton crops. And lastly in sport, South African football side Melody Sundowns ready to face Egyptian giants Al Ali in the quarterfinals of the CAF Championships League. But first, let's cross on over to the news desk and find out what is happening in the latest news bulletin. Here is Jolani. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he looks forward to a peaceful and democratic transition in Algeria following the resignation of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika. The 82-year-old aiding ailing leader who had been in power in Algiers for two decades stepped down after weeks of street protests against his rule. Guterres added that he salutes the mature and calm nature in which the Algerian people have been expressing their desire for change. Algerians have, however, vowed to continue protesting to demand sweeping change to the country's whole political system. An American woman and a Ugandan driver have been kidnapped from Queen Elizabeth National Park in southwest Uganda by gunmen. The pair was ambushed in their vehicle while on a gang drive. The kidnappers were are demanding a ransom of $500,000. An elderly couple who were also at the scene were not taken. The identity of the kidnappers is unclear. The Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab has carried out attacks in Uganda in the past but has never kidnapped anyone for ransom there. The park is southwest of the capital. Kampala near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. A cholera vaccination campaign has kicked off to reach nearly 900,000 cyclone survivors in Mozambique as officials rush to contain an outbreak of the disease. The country's authorities have reported two deaths so far from the acute diarrheal disease, which can kill within hours if not properly treated. The overall death toll from the cyclone is now at 598 in Mozambique, with more than 300 deaths in neighboring Zimbabwe and Malawi. Daniel Time is from the United Nations Children's Fund. The first vaccinations have begun. As you can imagine, this is a major challenge for us logistically because there's still lots of parts of the country that can hardly be reached. And so we work with helicopters and boats, but it's also a challenge in terms of communication because we need to sensitize the population. 
and we work with community health workers, volunteers, more than 1,000 have been trained that go out to the communities, but also with radio stations, uh, and they uh, teach the population about basic hygiene measures they can take to contain the disease, but also about the importance of the upcoming vaccination. Police have detained three suspects linked to a chemical plant blast in China, which killed 78 people and left hundreds injured. The explosion last month in Yangcheng City in eastern Jingansu province was one of the worst industrial accidents in the country in recent years. According to a statement released by released rather, three employees from the chemical plant whose facility was involved in the blast had significantly had significant responsibility for the accident. Officials said the suspects have been subjected to criminal coercive measures. Yang Cheng police declined to offer details on the case when contacted by AFP. And finally, a major study on the effect of air pollution worldwide shows that it reduces life expectancy by an average of 20 months. The State of Global Air report says long-term exposure to toxic air kills more people across the world than malaria and road traffic accidents. The BBC's Simon Ponsford has the story. The study's authors said the extent to which toxic air damages people's health came as quite a shock. They said children were taking the biggest hit, especially in South Asia, where those born today could see their lives cut short by 30 months. The dirty air comes mainly from traffic and industry, and in some countries from burning fuels for cooking indoors. The pollution leads to heart and respiratory diseases and makes chronic illnesses much worse. The report urges swift and effective action by governments to reverse the trend. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. The time is now 17.06 Central African time. And as we kick off the show, I'd like to remind you that you can get in contact with us throughout the show by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, Or you can tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Algerians are celebrating today following the resignation of ailing President Abdelaziz Bouteflika, whose bid to seek a fifth term has sparked mass protests in the North African country. Hundreds took to the streets of the capital, Algiers, after it was announced that the 82-year-old has stepped down with immediate effect. His departure has calmed a wave of protests demanding the removal of an aging elite seen by many as out of touch with ordinary people and the presiding and presiding over an economy uh, riven by criticism. Criticism. Bouteflika's exit comes after the army chief of staff had dramatically increased the pressure, demanding immediate action to declare him unfit for office under the constitution. For more on what Bouteflika's resignation means for Algeria, Channel Africa spoke to Ibrahim Dean, researcher at Afro Middle East Center, a think tank based in South Africa. I mean, I think it was a matter of time, as your report stated. You know, it was uh, many of his allies, key allies, had uh, um, removed their support from him, specifically the military and some within the FLN, the ruling FLN party. However, you know, in saying so, uh, 
Bouteflika's resignation doesn't necessarily change much because Bouteflika, you know, had had stroke and wasn't really in a full capacity since 2013-2014. And so it does seem as if there were people pulling the strings behind him. And these people still remain. And so currently the big issue and the big question is about who do the different factions within the elite have in mind to rule in Algeria and whether or not these will be acceptable to the other factions in the region. Now, the army has, has played quite a significant role to date um, in terms of making sure that it steps down, but, but what does their role become now going forward? So the army had been losing much of its influence in the early, in after 2010. But had removed and replaced key generals. He had removed about 12 generals last year. And he was trying to empower the civilian component of the state. And that's why the army has seized this opportunity to try and reinsert itself back into the you know, the political process. Uh, also, the army seeing that the popular sentiment was against Bouteflika also sought to instrumentalize the protest to actually increase its popularity. So the army will play a big role. However, I think of more concern is the fact that the army seems to want to be seen as representing the people. And generally, the army in Algeria, you know, over the past few years, haven't necessarily been the best representative of the people in terms of democratic you know, opening and democratic consolidation. So that's the concern. And as we speak, um, who's in charge now that Butelfik has resigned and uh, um, uh, what should happen next? So Butelfik's resignation is, uh, if I read his statement correctly, effective as of at the end of the month. So he's still in charge. He uh, basically uh, put in a new cabinet, uh, um, announced a new cabinet on Sunday. Uh, which is loyalist Nurdin Bidawi as uh, Prime Minister. Uh, and, you know, following his uh, resignation, I think the uh, as per the Algerian constitution, it's, it's going to go to, uh, will go to the spokesperson of the Senate. Uh, but, you know, in saying so, uh, as we said, Algeria is ruled by, a co- uh, you know, a coalition of, uh, or a cabal of elite group in the military, the political parties, the FLN and Democratic Rally, and the DRS, or the intelligence services. And behind the scenes, all of these you know, institutions are still there and still working to try and ensure the system remains. And so services and diplomatic activities and government activities are still going on as normal. And that was Ibrahim Dean, researcher at the South Africa-based Afro-Middle East Centre, talking to Zikona Miso. The former Gambian president, Yaya Yameh, has been accused of many things, widespread human rights abuses and dictatorial rule, to name just two. Add another to the list, two recent reports, one government-backed and the other independent, have accused him of plundering his country's resources on a massive scale. The BBC's Umaru Fofana reports from The Gambia. The Gambia is still reeling from the aftermath of Yaya Jame's rule. Life is an everyday struggle for many as the economy remains challenged. The man who led the country for 22 years and once told me that he would rule for a billion years is accused of running it aground. The Commission of Inquiry, set up to investigate him, have just published their report compiled from interviews with more than 200 witnesses. The results of the nearly two-year investigations claims he and his associates stole millions of dollars. Hundreds of cars and other assets have already been confiscated. I was given rare access to see those for which he was famous, or rather, infamous. I'm inside the garage at State House, the office of the president, and uh, there's a fleet of luxury cars here, Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Hummer Jeeps. The former president is alleged to have pillaged state resources to finance an ostentatious lifestyle 
these luxury cars are emblematic of how he enjoyed basking in that luxury. His monthly salary was less than $10,000, but he had a fleet of these and other luxury cars custom made for him. The cars parked here have gathered dust. Some have deflated tires. The government's report comes as a group of investigative journalists take the findings a step further, saying the former president and his close associates stole close to $1 billion. Of that amount, more than $350 million from the state telecommunications company, Gamtel, $325 million from the illicit timber trade, $70 million from the central bank, and $60 million from the country's pension fund. While that amount is much more than the state's estimates, the government believes the $1 billion amount could be true. Bart Tambedon is the Attorney General and Minister of Justice. I have reason to believe that their reporting is accurate in view of the fact that this commission alone has established that former President Jame has embezzled nearly six to seven hundred million US dollars if you put all the figures together. And also the fact that the commission was not able to investigate all of the former president's activities. And so the scale is not surprising as such. It was the brazenness of the activities and the intricate web of complex and sophisticated financial transactions that bear all the hallmarks of criminality. There is absolutely every intention to recover and recover and recover. I'm standing at the Westfield Roundabout, arguably Gambia's most popular square. And uh, during the elections, this place was teeming with thousands of people having converged here to celebrate what they called the new Gambia. I'm here to find out from them what they make of the allegations that former President Jami and his close associates stole hundreds of millions of dollars from the state. My reaction to this man is that the UN should do something to get back the money to the Gambian. It's not Jamie's money, it's not nobody's money, it's the Gambian money. And as for the new government, I'm begging them, or I'm urging them, to please focus more on developing the Gambia and stop arguing among themselves, or stop focusing at the back. For the past 22 years, um, the Gambia has been a lot of backwardness. This person government should do whatever it takes to make sure that Gambia has recovered from those kind of money that we have, that we have lost. So as a Gambian, ordinary Gambian, what I would love is if that money can come back to the Gambia so that at least the Gambian people will utilize the money in the best possible way. Jame fled the Gambia in 2017 and has since been living in exile in Equatorial Guinea. His APRC party leadership initially agreed to respond to the allegations but would not make themselves available despite several efforts. The investigations into what happened during Jame's rule will almost certainly continue. And that report was by the BBC's Mario Fofana reporting from the Gambia. United States has called on Burundi to rescind its decision to ban the British Broadcasting Corporation, otherwise known as the BBC, from operating in the country and lift the suspension of the Voice of America, otherwise known as the VOA's operating license. The Central African nation's media regulator revoked the BBC's license and accused it of airing a documentary it said was false and damaged the country's reputation and extended an existing suspension on VOA, accusing it of employing a reporter who opposed uh, an existing the government. Hundreds of Burundians have been killed in clashes with security forces and ha- half a million have fled since President Pierre Nkurunziza announced uh, in 
2015 that he would run for a third term in what his opponents saw as a breach of the constitution. Last May's referendum overwhelmingly approved changes that could let the president stay in power till the year 2034. To discuss this further with us, we are joined on the line by Mr. Isaiah Ntirizoshira, Burundian ambassador to South Africa. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us on the line. Thank you very much and good afternoon to everybody. Why has the Burundian government taken a decision to ban the BBC from operating in the country and suspend the broadcasting license of The Voice of America? Okay, first of all, uh, as you, I would like to make, let's say, as, as some, uh, an, an information about that, because there are people who are saying that this measure, these measures are taken in, in connection with the 2020 elections, but this is a normal work of the National Communication Council, because I will record that for BBC, for example, in March 2018, that means one, more than one year ago, BBC has been warned about the information which was aired, and unfortunately, uh, in uh, in April 2018, it was observed that the information which which was aired by by BBC was really very damaging for the image for the image of the country, and and, and it was proven that the the, the intention of the, the the journalists there was an evident intention to damage the image of Burundi. That's why in May 20, 2018, in May 2018, there was a measure, a measure which was taken by the uh, National Communication Council to, to suspend BBC for six months. And even for VOA, for Vox, for Vox of America, there was also a breach of the journalistic uh, code of ethics, which was observed, and the, 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 the VOA also was suspended for six months. Unfortunately, even the end, before the end of this suspension period, BBC has, has again repeated that, 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 that offence. And you have talked about the, the airing of a video which was damaging for the image of the country. It was, it was observed that the, the, the video was, uh, was, was containing the wrong information, only lies, and with the, 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 evident, the evident intention to harm the image of the country. That's why... The, Given that the BBC has been warned in in, in March in 2018, it was given a six a six month suspension in in, in in May. And by the way, after the six month month sanction, BBC wrote a letter to recognize that really it has the, the journalists in BBC had breached has 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 let's say uh, breached the law and had not respected. The, 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 the obligation of to verify, to provide verified and true, true information, meaning that when the, the National Communication Council takes a measure, it is based on a real misconduct of a media. So even, even this time, given that BBC has been warned in March, has, has, been, has been given a six-month suspension in May, in May, and before that suspension period, it again... It goes against the law. The, 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 the National Communication Council found out that it has no other, let's say, uh, alternative that to, to to take further measures as the suspension of that that session for a for a certain period. And for DOA, VOA, Voice of America, there is a, the suspension of six months has ended, but the conditions which have been posed by Burundian. By, by, by the Burundi National Communication Council have not been met, met yet, and so that that the, that what 
That's why the, the, the six-month suspension has been extended. All right, Ambassador, uh, yesterday the United States called for the Burundian government to rescind the decision to suspend the two broadcasters. Is the government considering lifting the ban of the suspension of these two broadcasters at all? I, I don't think so. Burundi will, will not consider this call because the suspension is based on real, real misconduct of, those, of, the, of some, some journalists. In those in, in, in those radio stations, so if there there is, there is true breach of the law, so the the, 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 the the law has to be applied. So they, they have to face the law. There is there is a communication. There is a, 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 a journalistic code of ethics which which has been signed between those the, both those radio stations and the Burundi National Communication Council. And if there is law, if there is a breach of the law, I don't see how some country can come and see and, and, and say you, you, you should receive the, the decision. Because the decision has been based on real breach of the law. And there have been repeated calls by uh, different rights groups uh, for freedom of expression in Burundi, which they say is being stifled. Would you say the Burundian government is committed to media freedom? Yes, it is committed, and you, you, you can verify yourself. There are many, many radio stations in Burundi, even even inter, many international radio which are operating in Burundi. They are operating freely, but there is this communication, National Communication Council, which is following up on a daily basis the work of this media. And when one, one, of, the, one of the journalists of one media doesn't comply with, with, the, with the, the, the law, some measures can be taken to the to the media, to the media. Otherwise, there is a really a real freedom of of, of, of information, a real press, press press freedom in Burundi. And Burundi ranks 159th out of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index 2018, compiled by the advocacy group uh, Reporters Without Borders. Don't you think that this ban will fuel suspicions that government doesn't take media freedom seriously? You see this kind, this this kind of ratings. You know, you, 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 I don't, I don't know on which basis they are they are made. Mm-hmm. What we see is that we, we, what we we see in Burundi. We, we have we have many 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 radio stations, many media operating, and it, it, it is true that some even even those media, you know, those journalists, if they breach a, a code of ethics, they have they have, they have to be to be punished. That's normal, and if, if, if you notice, this, this we have new, many new journalists because this is uh, this new era of press, press of free, freedom of, of press. You know, many journalists come. Maybe not not not, not all of the, not all of them are aware of this uh, uh, code of ethics of journalists, and it happens that often they breach the law, and sometimes they, they, the, the the Burundi National Communication Council has taken measures. I don't know. Anyway, this is this is not a concern for us. What we what we need is is that the media which are operating in Burundi follow the journalistic ethic of the code of ethics. All right. Well, uh, Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us on the line and letting us know, uh, just giving us a bit of insight with regards to what's happening in Burundi with regards to the BBC and the Voice of America and the ban which has been uh, placed upon these two broadcasters.
that is Isaiah Ntirizoshira, Burundi Ambassador to South Africa. Thank you again for joining us. The time is now 17.23 Central African Time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. All right, a very interesting conversation that we had with the Burundian ambassador to South Africa, Mr. Isaiah Tirizoshira. If you have any comments with regards to that conversation, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message, plus 27763003327, and you can tweet us at channelafrica1. The South African Medical Aid Scheme, ProfMed, says many people don't really know how much cancer treatment costs and what the impact on personal finances will be. Even though the medical scheme will cover some of the expenses related to cancer, there are limits. Ultimately, a patient's chosen medical aid plan will determine the coverage they can receive for cancer. Cancer diagnoses in South Africa are becoming more prevalent. The most common cancers include breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, skin cancer, and other soft tissue cancers. More from Craig Comrie, Chief Executive Officer from ProfMed. Well, it's estimated that uh, one in four males and one in six females will eventually contract cancer. I think with people living longer, cancer has become more prevalent, dominantly in later stages of life. So your danger stages tend to be when you're 70 and older, but we are seeing quite a few new cancers coming through when you're younger as well. So 25% for males is quite a big uh, quite a big amount, and so we think everybody's families in some ways have been touched by cancer. Now, with cancer being such a reality for many South African families, what is it that you think people need to know about the cost of cancer treatment? So just looking at an individual person trying to cover the cost of cancer, um, so there are lots of different types of cancer, and so treatment can range as far from 10,000 rand all the way to 2 million rand, and in some cases it's 2 million rand a year. And so financing and finding ways to finance that is very difficult for an individual. So the ways to make sure you have some type of cover would be either in South Africa a medical scheme, so medical schemes would cover much of that cost, and then you do have some dread disease insurance covers as well. But usually they are difficult to get and you cannot get them once you are diagnosed with cancer. So you need to be planning well ahead of time. For the purpose of some of our listeners who may not know, the Council for Medical Schemes regards cancer as a prescribed minimum benefit, that being the PMB. What exactly does this mean and what is the aim of the PMB? Yeah, a lot of members assume that because it's a PMB that means everything 
must be covered, and that's not true. In terms of the definition of the prescribed minimum benefit, I always draw people's attention to the fact that it is the minimum benefit. So it's the minimum treatment that the Council for Medical Schemes actually prescribes schemes to actually cover. What we do find is that that usually isn't sufficient in terms of when you speak to your oncologist and when you have a treatment plan. So what we call in the industry the level of care restricts the level of treatment to a minimum benefit, but usually there's a gap between that and a maximum benefit, which tends to be where the treating doctors would take you. You mentioned earlier that uh, a cancer diagnosis can be financially draining on families. How then does one choose what is regarded as a sufficient medical cover? When you're looking at your medical scheme and looking for the right cover, what you do want to check, and uh, nobody buys medical scheme for cancer cover, so it's usually just one of the items that you will compare benefits on. But you would have to look if they apply any limits to the cover, So a lot of the lower, more affordable type of plans will actually cap your oncology cover to 200,000 rand, some to 400,000 rand, and then you have some medical schemes that would charge you what they call co-payment, and that's out of your own pocket. So you have to look very carefully at the type of treatment that your doctor is suggesting, and then ensure that you engage a medical scheme to see what cover they are prepared to give you. Obviously, you should have cover by then. And uh, what we have seen over some time is is that annually medical scheme members get the chance to upgrade their cover or change the options that they're on. And uh, you must consider that risk and at the end of the year when you get the opportunity to actually choose better cover as well. And finally, with all the advancements in medicine, how treatable are most forms of cancer? I think unlike probably 50 years ago when somebody was diagnosed with cancer, their survival rate was about a year. We now have almost a 65% survival rate when it comes to cancer and people that are in remission. So cancer can be treated, and I think that's an important success factor. But with all the advancements in technology and, and medicines, the cost of covering the cancer is the one that really becomes, for many, inaccessible as well. So you have to just watch the amount of cover that you have. And that was Craig Comrie, Chief Executive Officer of ProfMed Medical Scheme in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It has just gone 17.30 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the news desk, where Jualani Tulo is standing by to let us know what is in our latest news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he looks forward to a peaceful and democratic transition in Algeria following the resignation of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika. An American woman and her Ugandan driver have been kidnapped from Queen Elizabeth National Park in southwest Uganda by gunmen. And finally, police have detained three suspects linked to a chemical plant blast in China, which killed 78 people and left hundreds injured. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulon. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. 
Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. This is Africa Digest. The United Nations has appealed to member states to respond quickly and generously to the humanitarian appeals that have gone out in the aftermath of Cyclone Adai in southern Africa. In a meeting of the Economic and Social Council, the Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed warned that uh, warned that of an almost 400 million US dollar funding appeal gone out for the for the three worst affected countries, only about 12% has been received. This, as concerned, concerns remained heightened over rising cholera and malaria cases that could see the death toll continue to rise. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The worst storm to hit southern Africa in many generations has already killed more than 700 people across Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. As the risk of continued flooding, the spread of disease and the loss of more lives persist, as Amina Mohammed, the UN's deputy chief, explained. The Central Emergency Response Fund immediately dispersed 20 million, yet the response is still underfunded. We also need to ensure that the response is expanded to rural areas and communities. The three countries need over 300 million for the next three months, yet only 46 million has been recorded on the financial tracking system. And so here we call on member states to to bridge this gap urgently. The clear message that the world needs to look towards not only rebuilding, but preventing such disasters in the future. Such calamities can erase in an instance years of hard-won progress. And while it is impossible to link any single weather event with climate change, such extreme storms are consistent with what scientists are telling us about the impacts of global warming and with what our own eyes can see. Recent hurricanes in the Caribbean and the catastrophic storms, droughts and fires in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and North America are driving home the existence of a new norm for which no country is immune. As these climate extremes add great pressure to an already stressed international humanitarian system, listen to David Beasley, who's executive director of the World Food Programme. For the year 2019, food security is going to be a serious, serious issue. And because of no power in any of these villages with over 10,000 power poles gone and no electricity, clean water and sanitation is a very serious issue. In fact, in some of the villages where the water is subsiding, children and families have been standing and walking in water for two weeks. You can imagine what that's doing uh, to the flesh, the rotting of the feet, and many issues that just come along with the devastation of this nature. With expectations of a decent harvest in the region, decimated by the breadth of Idai's destruction, Mark Lowcock is the Undersecretary-General for Humanitarian Affairs and responsible for the UN's overall emergency response. The needs, again, are very substantial. 900,000 people affected across 15 districts. And the thing that we're most concerned about in Malawi is the impact on what, as I saw when I was there three weeks ago, could have been a very good harvest. 
that now is very much under threat. And so the response needs will deal, need to deal both with the immediate problems, but also the likelihood that very large numbers of people will have lost their means of income um, for, um, you know, for many months into the, many months into the future. The response to Cyclone Idai also to be discussed at a meeting of the IMF and World Bank next week to again allow the UN's humanitarian officials to lobby gathered finance ministers on how the international community should respond financially to support the worst affected countries in a region where over 500 hectares of crops have been destroyed and more than 200,000 people displaced. The major focus now is on preventing a health emergency with some 900,000 doses of oral cholera vaccines arriving in Mozambique's battered city of Beira earlier Tuesday. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, says the dysfunctionality and corruption within the Home Affairs Ministry is a contributing factor towards xenophobia in the country. The party recently conducted an oversight inspection of the Umgenu Road Home Affairs in KwaZulu-Natal in light of the recent spate of violent xenophobic attacks which have flared up in the province. The party says the ruling African National Congress must concede that it has failed on the issue of immigration and has no plan to protect the dignity of foreign nationals. The DA Team 1 KwaZulu-Natal spokesperson on borders, Hanif Hussein, explains. The main purpose of our focus on home affairs and immigration uh, came as a result of the incidents of uh, violent attacks against foreign nationals in Durban. We were particularly concerned that President uh, Ramaphosa uh, Minister Lindy Wesesulu, as well as the Tigweni mayor, claimed that these are not acts of xenophobia, but merely acts of criminality. But that was contrary to the information that we were receiving from foreign nationals, as well as uh, local South African citizens in these informal settlements. So we visited a number of uh, places in Durban, and uh, in particular we went to the uh, the site where uh, foreign nationals who were displaced being held and, uh, and kept in Sherwood in Durban, and it was very clear to us that of the 250 people that were being held there, every single one of them were foreign nationals. And so I think that you know the ANC government president Ramaphosa and Lindiwe Sisulu and the mayor, either they don't understand uh, what the meaning of xenophobia is, or our suspicions are that they are trying to mask this as a, as a criminal element uh, so that they don't get embarrassed because they failed themselves to act on the recommendations of the task team that probed uh, uh, xenophobic attacks in previous years. In fact, 10 years ago, there was a report that was presented to Parliament after a task team uh, was appointed to go and look into the various xenophobic attacks that were happening across the country in Gauteng, in the Western Cape, in KZN, and so on. And they came up with a number of recommendations, not a single one of those recommendations, more than 10 years ago, have been implemented by Parliament. So government has failed to, to, to act on its own recommendations. And the only time that they actually get involved when it comes to treating foreign nationals with respect, managing their own immigration system, which they failed to do so, the only time they act is when there are violent attacks against foreign nationals. Talk to us now briefly about uh, the party sentiments that the dysfunctionality and corruption within the Home Affairs Department could be some of the contributing factors to the cases of xenophobia that we see uh, in the country. One of the main contributing factors, and yes, corruption is one of them, but one of the main contributing factors is the, you know, our poorest borders in our country. Um, uh, people from other countries can simply just walk into South Africa as if they're walking in a park undetected 
commit crimes in South Africa and return back to their countries also undetected because the South African police do not have the records of their fingerprints. So they're unable to even trace and, and, and track that, that, uh, the, uh, that criminal who committed such an act. And so because of these porous borders that we have in our country, people are streaming into the country, and not all of them, I must, I must tell you, are criminals. But what goes on is that because people stream into South Africa by the millions, even the Home Affairs Department can't tell you, what happens is that people themselves have lost faith in our government's ability to manage immigration, to manage the inflow of foreign nationals into the country. And because they've lost faith in government's ability to control it, they take the law into their own hands themselves. So they realize that foreign nationals, many of them undocumented immigrants here in the country, are, um, are, are illegally here, and so they want to get rid of them themselves because they don't think South African police or government can do anything about it. But then there's another side of it, and that is there are some foreign nationals who are genuine asylum seekers and refugees in the country who rightfully deserve to be here in terms of the UN convention that we have signed. The problem there is that when they arrive in South Africa and they go and attempt to regularize and register as an asylum seeker, uh, the Department of Home Affairs tells them that we are full, we can only interview you in six months from today because their diaries are full. They don't have enough resources to be able to interview these people. So as a result of that, you have many genuine foreign nationals who are genuine asylum seekers are walking around in South Africa with no documentation. That also exacerbates the problem. So it comes down essentially to the failure of home affairs to be able to manage the inflow of foreign nationals into the country, as well as the outflow of undocumented immigrants who are already in the country. But I mean, Hanif, what is it that uh, DA would then do differently to eradicate the corruption and inefficiency that it speaks of uh, at the Home Affairs Department? Well, the first thing that any person who's caught for corruption under a DA government will get 15 years in jail. There's no question about that. Because senior officials should not be who are corrupt should not be working in government departments. Senior politicians who are corrupt should not be sitting in parliament. They must be sitting in jail. That's the one thing that the DA will definitely implement. The second thing, most importantly, is to secure our borders. Because you can do everything that you please. You can try and go and find as many undocumented immigrants in the country and try and repatriate them. They will come back because there's no fence. They can just simply walk through. So we're putting good money after bad. The second most important thing that we will do is to secure those borders and to make sure that we make it as easy as possible for people to come into South Africa legally through our ports of entry and as difficult as possible for them to come into the country illegally. And that was Hanif Hussain, uh, the Democratic Alliance Team 1 KwaZulu-Natal spokesperson on borders, talking to Khumutso Mupulani. A mass cholera vaccination drive has kicked off in Mozambique city of Beira to contain the waterborne disease that has spread rapidly in the aftermath of Cyclone Adai that has left behind a swath of destruction. Nearly 900,000 doses of the cholera vaccine procured by the United Nations Children's Fund, otherwise known as UNICEF, and the World Health Organization arrived yesterday in the cyclone-hit city. There are now over 1,000 cases of cholera and two deaths from the disease. UNICEF's Daniel Tim reports. Unfortunately, the scenario that we were fearing and expecting has really come. There is uh, cholera cases. So um, we are very happy that we have now received yesterday the delivery of 900,000 cholera vaccines and the first vaccinations have begun. As you can imagine, this is a major challenge for us logistically because there's still lots of parts of the country that can hardly be reached and So we work with helicopters and boats, but it's also 
a challenge in terms of communication because we need to sensitize the population and we work with community health workers, volunteers, more than 1,000 have been trained that go out to the communities, but also with radio stations uh, and they uh, teach the population about basic hygiene measures they can take to contain the disease, but also about the importance of the upcoming vaccination. And for the sake of an update on the epidemic itself, I understand that over a thousand cases of cholera have been confirmed and there are now reports of two people who have died from the disease. Can you tell us more? Yes, I, I think these are actually numbers that are already uh, exceeded this morning. I don't have the exact numbers, but I think it must be around 1,400 cases now. So it's spreading rapidly. For us, the important thing is no matter if the cases are confirmed as cholera, as soon as the symptoms are there, which is severe watery diarrhea, we have to treat them and we uh, have to take care of this because it can, especially for children, immediately become a life-threatening condition. Now, when dealing with such an epidemic, what are some of the most important things that people need to bear in mind in terms of how they can better take care of themselves and avoid contracting the disease? What sort of information is being communicated to the people on the ground? Yes, as you know, the disease uh, is uh, transmitted through um, water or food and so hygiene measures that are always important are in particular important now in this situation to avoid unnecessary cases. So safe drinking water is the most important but also if somebody shows symptoms that he is isolated and that taken care of in the proper way. Daniel, thank you so much for that update. Is there anything that you would like to add? I just wanted to thank all the people also in South Africa that have shown solidarity with us. It's a big uh, joint effort and uh, we also thank you for all the funding that we have received uh, in UNICEF South Africa. Please keep on helping us. It's really needed at this moment. Thank you so much. And that was Daniel Tim of the United Nations Children's Fund on the line from Beira in Mozambique talking to Jane Rabotata. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. The lovely Tracy Boomgard is in the building. She's here to let us know what is happening with our money. Thank you, Samora. Rwanda's national carrier, Rwanda, will launch flights to Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo's capital, on the 17th of April. This development will boost business and ties between the DRC and Rwanda. Kinshasa is the third largest urban area in Africa after Lagos and Cairo. It also hosts the country's major industrial and commercial companies. According to Central Bank data, the DRC remains the main destination for Rwanda's informal exports, accounting for almost 87% of Kigali's informal cross-border exports. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon says Eskom has no intentions of implementing load shedding throughout winter or at most will have 26 days of Stage 1 load shedding until the end of August. The power utility is battling to deal with major financial and operational challenges, 
that resulted in the recent implementation of load shedding. Gordon has was addressing rather the media at the Tabo power station in the Free State province. For one reason or another, the unplanned outages go above 9,500. And in that instance, according to the planning that, that has been undertaken by ESCOM, a maximum of uh, 26 days of only stage one load shedding will, will occur throughout this whole five-month period. Today was day one of the 26 days, by the way, so it's 25 days, and there's no load shedding today. So that hopefully we can sustain the good news. The former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak has been accused of taking money from a government investment fund and spending it on luxury goods and renovating his home. The allegation comes on the first day of Najib's trial for corruption in Kuala Lumpur. The BBC's Jonathan Head reports. Mr Najib was greeted by supporters. He still has quite a few here at court before he went in to stand in the dock for the first time and face the charges. These are seven charges that were read out to him relating to a subsidiary of this giant government investment company, 1MDB, from which he's alleged to have siphoned $10 million into a personal bank account, as well as influencing the way in which this company borrowed money. This is just the first of what we think will be a marathon series of trials dealing with at least 42 charges against the former Prime Minister. Walt Disney Company has been sued over claims it underpays female employees. Andres Anderson LLP claims that corporate policies, such as basing new employees' wages on previous salaries, have a discriminatory effect on women. The legal action brought on behalf of two women claims the company does not have an internal mechanism to ensure women are not paid less than male counterparts for the same work. Disney denies the allegations, calling them without merit. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.97 Nigerian Naira, 10.46 Botswana Pula at 100.07 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.10 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.85 Brazilian hail, 65.33 Russian ruble, 69.10 Indian rupee, 6.72 Chinese yuan, and at 14.19 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,292 and platinum at $853 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $69.72 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And just before we close off the show, let's cross on over, cl- close off the show for the hour. Let's cross on over to the sports desk where Musiburi Makure is standing by to let us know what is happening in the world of sport. I did see that the South African football side, Mamelodi Sundowns, are ready to face Egyptian giants Al Ali in the quarterfinals of the CAF Championships League. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about that.
Good evening, sports fans. And starting off with that story, Lompakegana, captain of South Africa's football side, Mamelodi Sundowns, is appealing to supporters to come in their big numbers when they play against Al Ali in the CAF Champions League quarterfinal first leg encounter at the Lucas Moripe Stadium in the country's capital, Pretoria, on Saturday afternoon. The match kicks off at 3 p.m. Central African time after it was initially scheduled for Friday night. Yeah, we're looking forward to the match and I hope the supporters will come and support us like they did when we played uh, Zamalek when we won the Champions League in 2016. And the fact that the match is uh, free when you're having uh, Mami Lewis and Jersey it should, it should give the supporters a very edge to come and, and, and support the team. And well, Sundowns do not have a good record against the Egyptian Giants. They've always drawn against them at home but lost heavily away. Back in 2016, though, they overcame another Egyptian side, Zamalek, in the final after winning 3-0 at home but losing 1-0 away. Kegana says this is a big match. Well, I would say the biggest match uh, I will compare with those matches that we play because like, it served the same meaning for us. Look, uh, I would always love to win against these big uh, uh, teams in the Champions League because they really have a huge uh, uh, history in, in football. So for me, when I play against this team, it's a meaning, a, a significant meaning because really, 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 I, I've been watching these teams when I was still a kid in, in the village and well, Zimbabwe's Football Association's appearance before the Kosafa Disciplinary Board has been moved from the 4th of April to the 11th of April after President Falton Kamambo, who is out of the country, requested more time off. Now, uh, Zimba- uh, rather Zifa will face Kosafa Disciplinary Com- um, Board rather after pulling out of hosting this year's annual Kosafa Senior Men's Challenge Cup, citing inadequate time to organise the competition. Now, if found in breach of the Kosafa rules, Zifa will either be fined or barred from participating at this year's tournament. On to Super Rugby News, Stormers coach Robbie Flake has made seven changes to the starting lineup that will face the Reds at the Suncrop Stadium in Brisbane in a Super Rugby clash on Friday. Flake has uh, been forced to make a few changes to the team due to injuries, but also decided to rotate a few players for this important game. Here it is explaining those changes. Yeah, we, we, we obviously give him corner a start at, at Lucid, um, rotating with Kitsi. Um, he's been doing very well off the bench and, um, he gets a start. Obviously, it's also part of our, uh, bot management plan with Kitsi going forward. So he gets to come off on the bench. Um, I guess it's also tactically, you know, we want to finish strong, um, you know, and they've got quite a strong bench as well. So, in terms of um, the front row, so Kitty's got a role there. Um, then Scott uh, Scott obviously gets a start. So he gets his first start on tour, um, and then um, obviously France uh, back in for Wilco. Wilco got um, uh, injured on the weekend and uh, didn't pass his fitness test today. So uh, Michael Kumbara comes onto the bench. Meanwhile, the Sharks have made two changes to their team to face the Lions at the Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg on Friday. Young Hoka Kiron van Fieren replaces the suspended Aka van der Merva while Cohen Bosch comes in at fullback with Apelele Fassi dropping to the bench. Sharks coach Rob Dupree says Bosch earned his starting lineup, although he stopped after impressing as a substitute in the defeat against the Bulls at home last weekend. 
yeah, I think he's due, he's due for a start. Um, you know, we uh, in the beginning of the year, uh, you know, unfortunately he had a couple of niggles. Uh, had concussion in the one stage, and then he had an, an injury early on in the, in the year. So he never got going uh, early on. Um, thought he did really well when he came onto the field, so this is a nice start for him. And finally, the 2019 South African National Swimming Championships heads to the coastal city of Durban in the KwaZulu-Natal province, with the action taking place at the Kings Park Aquatic Centre from the 8th up until the 12th of April. This year's event also doubles up as the official selection trials for the 8th FINA World Championships, which will be held in Korea from the 21st up until the 28th of July. Here is Swimming South Africa CEO Sean Adriante. The competition, of course, is our major national competition for the year. It takes place from the 8th to the 12th of April at the Kings Park Aquatic Centre in Durban. And, of course, most importantly, it's a official selection trials for the 18th FINA World Championships, which takes place in Guangzhou, Korea, from 21st to 28th of July. So it's quite an important event. Um, of course, you'll see all our top swimmers, the likes of Chad Laclau, uh, Evan Foster, uh, Ryan Kutsia, Ethan Sweeney, Rebecca Meader, and of course Tatiana and uh, Tatiana Schoonmaker and Aaron Gallagher all trying to achieve uh, uh, World Championships qualification times. The Zion Sports News at the South Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we close off the first hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us a little bit later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time when we are going to be giving you more news from an African perspective. But anyway, should you have any comments on the show, be sure to let us know. All you need to do is send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. So from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Liana Malme and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. Taking us to the top of the hour is Uvengobani by Spokazi. We'll see you later.